Section 4 of G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1919-1920. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kristen Hand. G.K. Chesterton's Newspaper Columns, The New Witness, 1919-1920 by G.K. Chesterton. Christmas and the new negations. Last week I wrote a rather rambling criticism with a text from Christmas, and on this more formal occasion I shall again make the mistake of being too controversial for a Christmas number. Mr. Theodore Maynard has noted the same danger in connection with his excellent book of drinking songs. It is inappropriate, but it is also inevitable. When scientific reformers go a little further, and forbid flowers as they do flagons, there will be a similar battle of the flowers. When they warn the poets against the roses because the thorns scratch, the poets will probably scratch too. And so in the case of Christmas, it is perhaps inevitable that our holly should be a little prickly. It is inevitable that we should hang up our stockings a little too much as the bombast furioso hung up his boots. There was an age of innocence when my colleagues and I could be less combative about Christmas as about everything else. I trust there was a time when Mr. Maynard himself was content with the mistletoe bough and had never yet carved a cudgel out of the laurel tree. I trust that there were Christmas mornings when Mr. Scott Moncrief found something else in his Scottish stocking besides his highly Scottish dirk. I apologize for taking liberties with the names of distinguished contributors, but my salute must be excused by the sentiments of the season, when special revels should be held at the sign of the tankard of ale, and the log-roller's hut ought to be illuminated. My purpose is festive rather than personal. If I am rolling a log, it is only the Yule log. I say it is inevitable that even our revels should be held too much in a spirit of defense and even defiance. The Christmas household has been a besieged castle since the time of the Puritans, and it was only as one stage of a ceaseless war that the great Dickens raised the siege. Moreover, such a religious festival seems to many to stand today in a ring of rivals. Nevertheless, it seems to me a much stranger fact that in a practical sense it has no rival. When men say that Christmas hands on heathen traditions, they pay it a compliment, curiously enough, which nothing else except Christmas now deserves. Christmas really does something which the ancient heathens did, but which the modern heathens cannot do. Christmas is still a time of doing things and not only talking about theories. There is, in the true sense, a Christian pantomime, a self-expression by action. It means what Our Lady's tumbler meant when he stood on his head before the altar and said, I adore you with my heart and body, feet and hands. But the modern spirit has not the moral courage to make any festive formalities to express its faith. It cannot create a custom. It can only put into metaphors what its ancestors could at least put into mummeries. The agnostics often speak symbolically of an altar to the unknown god, but they do not build one. The ancient Athenians did. Even when they had nothing but agnosticism to express, they were so active that they managed to express it. Even their ignorance was creative. Even their negative was positive. It is not even impossible to imagine the sort of emblems of shrouded faces or lifted fingers of silence in which Greek art might have graven or depicted it. It is only in the modern mind that ignorance is also impotence. 
It cannot find or dared not carry out any ritual of its religion of doubt. Herbert Spencer said that music could be made the best expression of his worship of the unknowable. But he did not establish a first-rate brass band to do it before a shrine in Hyde Park. And no one would have been more surprised than he, if when taking his meticulous constitutional in that enclosure, he had heard the sounds of harp, sackbut, psaltery, dulcimer, and all kinds of music, and seen the fashionable company bowing down to some enormous image of the unknowable, or at any rate of the unrecognizable. Mr. H. G. Wells refers to the creator as the veiled being, but he is not really recognized as a veiled being, as Isis really was recognized as a veiled being. He would be mildly surprised if the veil appeared in painting and sculpture as well as in language and literature. He might even be momentarily disturbed if men turned so airy a metaphor into marble. And I feel sure he would be quite annoyed if he suddenly found himself in a great temple opposite a veiled image whose veil he was forbidden to lift. Mr. Wells, of all the men in the world, would most certainly want to lift it. But this paralysis of artistic activity, if I may so describe it, is not only typical of those modern creeds that are avowedly indefinite, it is also typical of those that are definite. It is not easy, perhaps, for Christian science to produce anything very vivid in the way of art. The author of The Path to Rome observed, in a moment of discomfort, that it was difficult for an artist to draw pain in the foot and knee. Perhaps it would be still more difficult to draw the absence of pain in the foot and knee. Christian science has produced a newspaper, but I do not think it has produced a book. Science and health is bound between covers and might be said to be cast in literary form, if it were not rather cast in literary formlessness. Certainly, I do not envy the rising draftsmen who should be employed to illustrate it. I believe it to be the same with sculpture as with drawing and writing. The Christian scientists have money enough to load the earth and darken the sky with monuments, but I have not seen anywhere as yet an allegory statuary group of Mrs. Eddy, supported by her husbands. And since this creed does not cultivate these more elaborate arts, it goes without saying that it does not cultivate the simple and even spontaneous art of ceremonial. What is true of the rather faded fashion of Christian science is also true of the fresher fashion of spiritualism. Spiritualism, in a sense, has doctrines, it certainly has miracles, but it does not strictly have ceremonies, and therefore it does not have arts. Here again, it does not merely differ from Christianity, but from that common human need which was satisfied by Christianity. As a matter of mere historical imagination, I make the guess that if spiritualism had appeared in another age, its mere machinery would have been less cheap and cheerless. The tables that are turned by spirits would not have been turned out from factories, one exactly like another. They would have been carved and colored and inlaid like altars, with individual craftsmanship. Imaginative instinct would have seized, for instance, on the accident that the planchette is generally made in the shape of a heart, and would have turned it into a symbol. The pencils of the spirit artists would themselves have been artistic, and even the tambourines might have been musical. I suspect that even the tying up of the medium with ropes would have been a ritual like the binding of some ancient victim, not only with fillets, but with garlands. But in the actual atmosphere, all this is very difficult to imagine, as difficult as to imagine Sir Arthur Conan Doyle suddenly making his appearance in a towering mitre, or the strangely figured vestments of some lost cult of antiquity. And I've tried hard to imagine that, with no result except exhaustion. 
Hence, in preserving the proper ceremonials of Christmas, we are preserving, among other things, something that has certainly been normal to most nations and ages, but which is abnormally neglected in our present industrial decline. We may say with pride that we are preserving something heathen, for we are preserving something human. It is the more emancipated world all round us that is becoming relatively inhuman. Men, if they have no other gods, might at least have household gods, as the heathens did. And where the house is a temple, it will have rights, like those of Christmas. Today, the tendency is for the legislator and lawyer to break up the householder's functions and distribute them among institutions, just as their master, the usurer, breaks up the householder's furniture and distributes it among the pawn shops. It may yet be amusing to watch Christmas itself being cut up in this way. A family will no longer be allowed to toast chestnuts and tell fairy tales at the same time. The fairy tales will be taught in the state school and will be called folklore. The chestnuts will be served at the communal restaurant and will be called vegetarianism. All information about holly and mistletoe can be obtained from the Department of Instruction in Botany. For sections of the Yule Log, showing stages in the growth of the tree, the young student must inquire in the arboreal section of the same department. Hundreds of stockings will be hung up in rows, like waterproofs in a cloakroom, to be covered by tickets. The game of Snapdragon will present a certain difficulty owing to a conflict between scientific realism and teetotal morality. But the world will watch with keen interest the patient experiment of Professor Pook in his effort to set fire to lemonade. But perhaps it is more likely that they will simply let it alone, that these ancient rites will remain only among the desolate and oppressed, and an enlightened citizen will pause with a face of disgust outside some dark and squalid hovel, out of which will come like the cry of some prehistoric beast, the horrible sound of human laughter. End of section 4